The Book of the Covenant. As we begin reading the fifth and final book of the Torah, I'd like to discuss three questions first. Why does the Book of Devarim have the structure it does, a mix of history, law, recollection, and anticipation? The sages knew that Devarim had a clear structure. Elsewhere in the Torah, some rabbis used the principle of smichut parashiot, that we can learn something from the fact that passage Y occurs immediately after passage X. However, others didn't, because there's a rule, ein mukdam umochaba Torah, meaning the Torah doesn't always follow a strict chronological sequence, so we cannot always attach significance to the fact that the passages are in the order they are. However, everyone agrees that there is precise order and structure in the Book of Devarim. But what is that order? Second, the rabbis originally called Devarim Mishneh Torah, a second law, hence the Latin name Deuteronomy, which means the second law. But in what sense is Devarim a second law? Some of the laws Moses states in the book have appeared before, others haven't. Is it a repetition of the laws Moses received at Sinai in the Tent of Meeting, or is it something new? What exactly is the meaning of Mishneh Torah third? What is the book doing here? It represents the speeches Moses delivered in the last month of his life, to the generation who would cross the Jordan and enter the Promised Land. Why is it included in the Torah at all? If the Torah is a history book, then we should proceed directly from the end of Bamidbar, the arrival of the Israelites at the bank of the River Jordan, to the book of Joshua when they crossed the river and began their conquest of the land. If the Torah is a book of law, then Devarim should just be a collection of laws without all the historical reminiscence and prophecy it contains. So what kind of book is Devarim? And what is its significance to the Torah as a whole? A number of relatively recent archaeological discoveries have, however, thrown new light on all these questions. They're the engraved records of ancient treaties between neighbouring powers. Among them are the Stele of the Vultures, commemorating the victory of Ernatum Rugula of Lagash in southern Mesopotamia over the people of Uma, and that of Naram Sin, king of Kish and Akkad, with the ruler of Elam. Both date from the third millennium BCE, that is to say, before the time of Abraham. These treaties are of two kinds between parties of roughly equal power, which are called parity treaties, and those between a strong one, a precursor of the modern idea of a superpower, and a weak one. These latter are known as suzerainty treaties, suzerain meaning the dominant power in a particular region. Another name for treaty is, of course, Brit, or covenant. And we now see their significance for an understanding of Judaism. Covenant was the basic structure in the ancient Middle East of treaties between neighbouring powers. Abraham, for example, made a Brit with Avimelech, king of Gerar at Beersheba, as we see in Barashas 21. So does Isaac in Barashas 26. Jacob does so with Lavan in Genesis 31. What the newly discovered treaties show is the precise form of ancient covenants. They had six parts. The first was a preamble, 
establishing the identity of the personal power initiating the covenant. The second was a historical prologue, reviewing the history of the relationship between the two parties to the covenant. Then came three, the provisions of the covenant itself, the stipulations, which were often stated in two forms, general principles and detailed provisions. Then there followed number four, a provision for the covenant to be deposited in a sacred place and read on a regular basis. The fifth came the sanctions associated with the covenant, namely the blessings that would follow if it was adhered to and the curses that would occur if it were broken. And then sixthly and lastly is a statement of witnesses to the agreement, usually the gods of the nations involved. Now, the entire book of Devarim turns out to be structurally an extended covenant on exactly these lines. This is how it works. The first five verses of the book are the preamble. They announce the place, time and person initiating the covenant that follows Moses on behalf of God. Then there is the historical prologue from uh, the sixth verse of the first chapter to uh, the end of chapter 4 in which Moses recapitulates the history that's brought them to where they are, mostly recalling the events described in the book of Bermidbar. Then come the stipulations. Chapters 5 to 11 are the general provisions, Ten Commandments, Shema, and so on, recapitulation of events surrounding the making of the covenant at Sinai, and then then the specific provisions, chapters 12 to 26, which are the details of the law with special reference as to how they are to be carried out by the people as a whole in the land of Israel. Then come four, deposition and regular reading, which we find in uh, Devarim chapters 27 and 31, which tell us that the law was to be inscribed on stone at Mount Eval, The Torah was written by Moses and placed in the ark, and it was to be read in public at a national assembly by the king every seven years. Then, fifthly, come the sanctions, the blessings and the curses. Chapter 28 of Devarim states the blessings and the curses, and 29 to 30, the actual covenant renewal, together with the statement that even if the people break the covenant and the curses come to pass, Return tshuva is still possible. Then finally, of course, come the witnesses, which uh, are described in chapters 30 to 32 as heaven and earth. And then this song, meaning this Torah, which will be the witness to the covenant. In other words, apart from Moses' song and the blessing of the tribe with which the book and Moses' life come to an end, the entire book of Devarim is a covenant on a monumental scale. We now see the extraordinary nature of the book. It's taken an ancient political formula and used it for an entirely new purpose. What's unique about the covenant is that first, one of the parties is God himself. This would have been unintelligible to Israel's neighbors and remains extraordinary even today. The idea that God might bind himself to human beings, linking his destiny to theirs, making them his ambassadors, his witnesses to the world, is still radical and challenging. Second, the other party to the covenant isn't, as it always 
was in the ancient world the king or ruler of the relevant nation, here it is the people as a whole, every Israelite, as we saw in Exodus 19 and 24, and throughout Deuteronomy is party to the covenant and co-responsible with the people as a whole for its being kept. From this flows the idea of Kol Yisrael Aravin Zerbazer, all Jews are responsible for one another, as well as the much later American idea of we, the people. This transformation meant that every Jew had to know the law and teach it to his or her children. Every Jew had to know the story of his or her people, reciting it on Pesach and when bringing first fruits to Jerusalem. This is covenant politics, a unique form of political structure based not on a hierarchy of power, but on a shared sense of history and destiny. It's a moral politics dedicated to creating a just and gracious society that honours the dignity of all, especially the downtrodden, the poor, the powerless and the marginal, the widow, the orphan and the stranger. The structure of the book is now clear. It follows precisely the structure of an ancient suzerainty treaty between a strong power, God, and a weak one, the Israelites. Politically, such treaties were well known in the ancient world, but religiously, this is unique. For it means that God had taken an entire people to be his partners in the work of creation by showing all humanity what it is to construct a society that honours every individual as the image of God. We also now understand what the phrase Mishneh Torah means. It means that this book is a copy of the covenant between God and the people made at Sinai, renewed on the bank of the Jordan, and renewed again at significant moments in Jewish history. It's the written record of the agreement, just as a ketubah is a written record of the obligations undertaken by a Jewish husband to his wife when they stand under the chuppah. We also now understand the place of Devarim in the Hebrew Bible as a whole. It turns out to be the axis on which all Jewish history turns. Had the generation who left Egypt the faith and courage to enter the Promised Land, all Jewish history would turn on the revelation at Sinai. In fact, though the episode of the spies showed that the generation lacked the spirit to do so, therefore the critical moment came for the next generation where Moses, at the end of his life, renewed the covenant with them as the condition of their inheritance of the land. The four previous books of the Torah lead up to this moment, and all the other books of Tanakh are a commentary to it, an account of how it worked out in the course of time. Tvarim is the book of the covenant, the center point of Jewish theology, and the project it defines is unique. For it aims at nothing less than the construction of a society that would moralize its members, inspire others, and serve as a role model of what might be achieved were humanity as a whole to worship the one God who made us all in his image. Shabbat Shalom.